Hey, it's Greg Brady. Thanks for checking out the Toronto Today podcast for Thursday on the 17th of March. It is St. Patrick's Day. New regulations or shall we say a lack of regulation when it comes to the need for a negative test when you arrive back in Canada. Things have changed a lot in just four weeks, five weeks. And I'd say they've changed a lot in two months when we were talking about almost forced vaccinations, taxing the unvaxxed. Is the next step unvaccinated people flying on airplanes? It's possible. It's very possible. We'll have our Chatterbox segment as well with Alan Carter and Sabrina Nanji uh, delving into the influence of Volodymyr Zelensky and his leadership influencing what we might expect in our own politicians. It's that and much, much more. Bruce Arthur on the show as well from the Toronto Star. We'll talk about unvaccinated athletes still playing their sport and potentially not being able to come to Toronto and play it against the Blue Jays. A lot of New York Yankees and a lot of Boston Red Sox. We'll talk about that on the way as well. Toronto Today starts now. Let me start here with uh, Russia and Ukraine. Very consistent coverage uh, over the last couple of days. And you can tell when the messaging starts to turn a little bit, can't you? Any kind of stories like that, any kind of news stories like that. And a lot of this has been about a uh, star studded tour with President Zelensky. He uh, is speaking to the German government today um, in uh, in their assembly he spoke to U.S. Congress yesterday with senators and, and congressmen and congresswomen assembled uh, almost all in person. Joe Biden watched it from his residence. Kamala Harris did the same. And obviously he was speaking to Canadian Parliament uh, earlier in the week on Tuesday. In fact, I noticed yesterday people uh, mentioning that Justin Trudeau uh, called Zelensky yesterday. Very excited that we always had that. We always had that crush on that girl in, in school and we would call them and We'd be worried. I hope I don't. You'd write stuff down, almost like topics, almost like we're a little more prepared for this show, but not much. I don't want to stress it, but but you'd be ready to pivot to other topics. I can only imagine the uh, the sort of, you know, calling the cute girl in seventh grade list that Trudeau has for Zelensky. There's a, there's some thirst happening between Justin Trudeau and president and, and Volodymyr Zelensky. He's like when that phone rings and you get through, it's like winning concert tickets on the phone through a radio station for something really cool that you want to go to. He's you could you know that he's super excited that Zelensky's got time to take the call. Not only like he comes home probably tells his wife and not only did he address parliament and he called me dear Justin that wasn't actually the good part of the speech to be honest. Um he was kind of called that was a bit of a talking to to be fair. Not that every, you know, Western Demo- Demo- Dem- Democratic government's not getting a talking to from Zelensky through this process. But uh, but not only did he call me dear Justin, but then he answered the phone and we talked just a day and a half later. It was very exciting. So that happened yesterday. Um, Lester Holt of NBC News did a chat with Zelensky yesterday. Here's what's changing. Here's what's changing if you haven't spotted it in this story without getting too deep into the weeds here is the the NATO thing is gone. It's gone. Ukraine is not going to become a member of NATO. And that was not something that was getting discussed with high frequency a week ago at this time. The second part is, is that the no-fly zone is certainly gone. The concept is, give us planes then. If we're not going to close airspace, and there are being atrocities committed from the air by the Russian forces, there's no question about that. Um, if anything, well, supposedly, you know, settlement talks are escalating. So's the violence and not just any violence, violence against civilians. Everybody saw that the uh, that there was a theater in Mar- Mariupol that was bombed yesterday. Uh, our time, obviously, uh, early morning, but their time late afternoon that uh, they had written the word children on either side of the of the venue, hoping that there would be uh, at least an element, a decorum of humanity and not to, you know, not to lay waste to it. But that didn't end up happening here. There was a huge loss of life and casualty factor uh, for the Ukrainian citizens yesterday. No question about that. But here in this, uh, just this little, you know, snippet from Lester Hold on NBC Nightly News talking with President Zelensky yesterday, it seems fairly obvious that they've let a couple things go here. 
You delivered a very passionate speech uh, to Congress. You once again renewed your call for a no-fly zone. As you know, that's a non-starter in this country. But you also made the pitch uh, for an alternative, and that's the fighter planes. Do you think that President Biden is inching closer to perhaps reconsidering uh, transferring fighter planes to Ukraine? Well, this is the choice for the President Biden to, 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 to take and the whole civilist world to, would need to take. And hopefully that choice would coincide with the choice of, of the Ukrainian people because currently uh, Russia has uh, um, an advantage in the air. Our partners can support us from the standpoint of uh, supporting and supplying of those aircrafts. And that's what they want. Upwards of $800 million, close to a billion dollars. It's as close to a blank check as any government has ever got for anything from a G7 power in terms of volume. Remember what we had Bob Geldof uh, start Band-Aid and then Live-Aid to raise money for famine in Ethiopia. Governments, the Reagan government in the States, the Thatcher government, the Mulroney government, they all could have just stroked a check, but instead they did not. They kind of, you know, you know, there was some posturing here and there. That's a massive, massive check. Now, I don't know if the check ends up being enough, and I don't know whether Ukrainians, their bravery uh, can continue. We've all wavered through this. We're like, they're going to do it. Russia's losing. Russia's getting, you know, uh, Russians are, are the morale is really low. People are dying. They didn't expect this battle. We're four weeks in now. So we've all been astonished and we've marveled at how brave they've been. We'd like to think we'd be a fraction of brave defending our, our own country if it ever were to happen here. If it ever were to happen, and I know you'd say, well, shouldn't Ukraine expect something? They're right on Russia's border. Putin's building up. He's already been, he already, you know, climbed into Ukraine, uh, grabbed what he thought belonged to him, right? With the, uh, with the Crimea annexation back in 2014, right after the Sochi Olympics. But as we marvel at how brave they are, we have to document that their, their suffering is immeasurable right now. And we're targeting the Russian economy. There's sanctions. We're giving them weapons and other forms of military aid. And we have to keep doing both. And we have to help civilians no longer in the country. We have a lot of balls to juggle. Not saying we shouldn't keep juggling them. Not saying that. And I think Zelensky's wrong here. It's a weird one, too. We are all over. I, I mentioned there, there's a fawning, fawning aspect with Zelensky. And I understand it. Okay. He's very inspirational. But his concept of uh, of the no-fly zone would push us into a potential World War III. That's not just, you know, a, a figure of speech. That's not just posturing on the negatives. Oh, well, you're just talking about worst-case scenarios. No, many experts are saying that's a sure-case scenario. You cannot back Putin into a corner here. We need to let him get away out, okay? You don't want, you don't want it the other way around. So how do we... How do we help with civilians? How do we help the people that are still there? And I understand this, too, is that Ukrainians are looking at this saying, what's the point of me, Lee? I'm going to stay in my apartment building. You think I want to head on the road? You think I want to pack everything I own, including pets, in my car? I was living a normal, everyday life, and I was enjoying it, it to the nth degree. And now, and now you're telling me, pack everything in a car and get out. For what and to what is the biggest question as well. Uh, the, the, uh, the UN put out a statement yesterday. Their High Commission for Refugees, they study this stuff. They get the numbers right. They're not just, you know, me like some schlub on the radio or somebody uh, who took a few politics courses guessing. They estimate 12 million people inside Ukraine will still need help. They have nothing left to return to. They have no bargaining power. They have no leverage for uh, for them to decide to pack everything up and go. So it's a massive, massive problem. I don't know how we escalate things, but I think we're worried right now that we're not we're still not doing enough. And what do we do for people who say, I can't handle it anymore? There's a daily barrage and stress of I'm going to drive down the street in my car and get shot. I'm going to stay where I am and my property is going to be bombed. I'm going to go somewhere, hide somewhere, and a missile's going to drop where I am. Missiles, bombs, bullets. They're worried about all three 
of those potential things. And it's beyond terrible. It's beyond terrible. Gwythian Prince is a uh, political science expert. He was asked on Good Morning Britain earlier this morning whether the tide is turning in Russia and whether there's potential for Vladimir Putin to be taken out from the inside. Here's what he said. Is he likely to be taken out? Well, it's not impossible. I mean, that's what happens. You remember that in the Second World War, we had the Stauffenberg plot, the 20th of July plot. Uh, he's disrespected some of his inner circle publicly on television. He's done that. I mean, that's a start. And he did it yesterday in his latest video speech. I watched the translation. Of course, there were shots at the West. Of course, he's digging in uh, and uh, and describing a, a so-called fifth column and national traitors and, and whatnot. Um, there's a lot of people that don't want to let the fish off the hook here. Okay. A dictator is always going to have enemies. It, this is a, this was a lesson learned. And there was a lot of suspicion as to how it happened and why it happened when it came to operation desert storm and Saddam Hussein, you, you're, you've got ground troops in Iraq. You can go find him. You can go take him out. You, you have been engaged in, in a ground warfare against the Iraqi, uh, whatever that was card, the, the, the high guard, the high commission, um, but Iraq was going down. You didn't have to let Saddam Hussein a live through it, b keep power, and c exercise that power over the next twelve, thirteen years. A lot of a lot of 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 suffering and a lot of tragedy and a lot of humanitarian violations wouldn't have happened for twelve or thirteen years had that not been the case. Do you know who's running Iraq right now? No, you don't. <laughs> but we knew it was Saddam Hussein from nineteen ninety to two thousand and thirteen. So um, there's a lot of skepticism about what's happening at this bargaining table. Well, if Russia does this, does Ukraine do that? Many people don't believe Putin's looking for compromises. And many people believe when Putin's regime goes down, better off all of us are. Okay, so he's got his enemies. He's got his enemies. Hitler had his enemies. Mussolini had his enemies. Muammar Gaddafi in Libya had his enemies. You just have to find the right time, the right place. Uh, th this has to be purged and simply saying, you know, stroking a pen and, and signing a document saying, OK, we won't join NATO. OK, we, we you know, we, we will never have nuclear power, nuclear weapons in our uh, within our borders. You just go back to doing what you're doing. You know, thanks for everything. See you later. I don't think so. I don't think it's that simple for the Ukrainian people. I'm not sure it's that simple for Zelensky. So both sides here playing a little bit of a game here. They're playing a little bit of a game. And I don't know how we would uh, we would end up thinking otherwise. Um, this is really interesting to me is that there is now a Canadian developed covid vaccine. Maybe you didn't know this. Yeah, it's 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 supposed to have been greenlit by Health Canada by now. But I was reading about it last night. And the World Health Organization is likely to reject our vaccine. Why? Not because not because of its efficacy or lack thereof, but because it has ties. I can't even you can't even make this up. It has ties to Philip Morris, which is a obviously a massive tobacco company. And uh, the vaccine uh, uses a cousin of a tobacco plant. Now, the company says the vaccine can't be smoked. Well, isn't that great that we're even having that conversation and you need to say that don't smoke the vaccine. It was found to be 71 percent effective against symptomatic covid in trials, but it's a big problem. Here's what the WHO's assistant director general said. It's well known that WHO and UN has a very strict policy regarding the engagement with tobacco and arms industry. So it's the fact that the company's partially owned by Philip Morris that may prevent it becoming available. Now, it'll be available in Canada, but not to be used overseas. And that's a huge problem because what were the issues right from the get go? What ended up costing us time? Like we forget you can go here, get a vaccine, go there, get a vaccine. We've known that access stop. Like it's amazing. It drove me crazy last summer. Well, maybe people just don't know it's available. Well, there's language barriers. Oh, my God, the language barrier. There aren't Polish people and Russian people and uh, and, and you know, people who speak uh, Swahili and people who speak Spanish wandering around the streets of Toronto going, is there a pandemic happening? No, it's a clear and distinct choice not to take the vaccine four or five months in. Once we got into last summer, that's what it was. That's what it was. And it still is for people not taking the vaccine. But let's be perfectly honest about our, our delay here. It was beyond frustrating when people would ask the question, 
Do we make any vaccines in Canada? Why don't we? We're a nation of 40 million people. We had the facilities to do it before. We had the wherewithal. We've got the technology. We've got the smart people. These companies have footprints. Pfizer has a footprint in, in our country. Moderna has a footprint in our country. Why can't we do it? And it was beyond frustrating that we indeed could not. Philip Morris only owns 21% of this company producing the vaccine. And the majority stake is in uh, a company called Medicago. And that's uh, held by a Japanese pharmaceutical company, Mitsubishi Tanabe. That's according to a company spokesperson. But when you see the headline, you know, WHO likely to reject Canadian-developed COVID vaccine over tobacco ties. Again, you couldn't script this out and be more frustrated that all this time has gone on. And I get it. Many people listening, clearly, uh, based on the numbers, say, I've had my three shots. That's it. I'm good. My danger's over. And I don't have an issue with you saying that. There's still a lot happening right now. There's still a lot swirling. There's still things to keep an eye on. And there are still, uh, I'll, I'll use the phrase again, balls to juggle to stay out of trouble here collectively and certainly individually for households. But this is really unbelievable. Health Canada, I don't, I don't think it even made the news. Health Canada greenlit this a month ago, a month ago. And uh, and it, this runs into this roadblock from the World Health Organization. Didn't we know? Didn't we know that developing a vaccine that had ties to a tobacco company was going to be a problem? That they have a policy that they weren't going to. There wasn't a lot of wiggle room on this particular policy. Can't figure that out for the life of me. Tracy Vinecourt's an education professor at the University of Ottawa. She joins me now to discuss just that. Uh, she wrote uh, this op-ed in the Globe and Mail with a colleague. And um, I, I love what you're getting at here. Uh, and we're also, I, I don't know that this is getting done immediately. I've sort of hesitated at the whole, what's the rush scenario? Because it has been 17 months uh, with masks and schools and little kids and whatnot uh, without a lot of empirical data and evidence um, that much is being accomplished with it. But, but we are moving in this direction towards next week, aren't we, Tracy? We have been reactionary throughout this whole pandemic. We haven't been prepared for a lot of things, right? Um, so eventually the masks were going to come off. And I'm just surprised that we didn't have a discussion about this. You know, it wasn't something that was discussed in schools. Um, there wasn't any, I didn't see any public health messages on how to address this with your child. Um, I didn't see anything coming out of schools about how to have this conversation with your children. Um, and yet that's what's happening, right? So when they come back from um, their March break, they're going into schools where some kids are going to be masked and some kids aren't going to be masked. And it seems a little odd that this did that this didn't exist. Yeah, I, I wish there'd been more um, sort of nuance around it, and especially in, in an educational setting, they they sure are putting all the onus, aren't they, on on parents? Now, I, I do think last week we uh, we'd seen anecdotally that some teachers had made mention of it, but some teachers also were um, you know were kind of very open to the concept of it, and some teachers were very well. I expect you still to wear a mask and. That's that's tricky territory, isn't it? Because no one wants to feel uh, coerced by this. And and I, you know, I, I think about kids right now and everything they've gone through and kids kind of can dig in, into each other anyway, in a way that adults can joke around with each other and adults get that it's joking. Um, kids internalize stuff and, and can take things. I know I did when I was a kid. You can take a little ribbing uh, very, very seriously and, and you don't know whether it's on that line between that person's ribbing me because they like me or they want to make, <laughs> I, I should lay down on a couch and talk more about this, but that, but or, or they ribbing <laughs> me because they want to make me look bad in front of the rest of the class. And I, I worry we've left a lot of those avenues and doors open. I'm, I'm, I'm hoping our kids surprise us. They always do. They always respond maybe more positively than we think. I'm hoping that they're going to be better than what I'm seeing in adults. And I expect they will. I mean, they're pretty woke compared to my generation in a lot of ways, and that's great. Um, so I tend to think that they're gonna, we're going to see tolerance. I tend to think that we're going to see compassion and sensitivity and, and the like. Um, but in case we need some kids who need more, um, more prompting, more guidance, um, I, I wrote this with my colleague, Dr. Craig, um, for kids that are going to need a little bit more support. One thing that we kept thinking about 
um, was, so Dr. Craig also studies bullying. I study bullying. She studies children's mental health. I study children's mental health. So it was kind of like a perfect uh, uh, pairing to write this. Um, I kept thinking about like the kids who are going to be anxious about this and what do parents say to them? Because one thing is um, we know that reduces anxiety is predictability. So we need to have consistent messages. They need to know what they're going to expect. Um, And we've also told them for the better part of a year or so that you wear a mask to help yourself and to help others. And now we've just flipped this script. So they need to understand this. They need to have some perspective, um, some predictability to reduce their anxiety. And then there also needs to be um, just a discussion about individual differences and how um, that, you know, people come to decisions based on different risk assessment, different information, that sort of thing. We would hope everybody's sharing the same information, um, that there's a common way of viewing information, but that's not the reality. And so my worry is that people are going to either vilify mask wearers or people who aren't wearing masks. And I don't want that. I just want people to have tolerance. I want our kids to be tolerant and I want the adults to be tolerant about the decisions. And then finally, and I know I'm kind of going on yeah, and on it's here. Keep going. It's great. The thing that's frustrating me is when adults don't appreciate that the kids have no autonomy. This isn't really their decision. Our government made this decision, right? And the adults um, that are, you know, in the lives of these children, meaning their parents, are making the decision for the most part for them, unless they have um, older adolescents. So it's not for teachers to call out students who are wearing a mask or not wearing a mask. It's not for other students to do it. Um, you know, this is a choice that was made. And for for the most part is a choice that's been um, um, placed on youth without much input from youth. Yeah, I, that's so well said. By the way, Tra- uh, Dr. Tracy Viancourt, our guest, uh, a tier one Canada research chair at University of Ottawa, and she chairs uh, the COVID-19 Task Force Royal Society of Canada on Toronto today on 640 Toronto. Our generation never had, obviously, a pandemic and never had anything like this. So I even think, you know, we we go through all these steps of parenting young kids, uh, toddlers, teenagers, and uh, and yet there was no way to prepare for this because we we've never had... We, when we were kids, we never had some kind of crisis of our own where we we were where we had to look out for each other. The, the the basics were obviously simple, like when you get to drive, you got to be safe. There's other cars on the road. Um, you know, don't don't push a kid you don't like down the stairs. There will be consequences. He he or she could get injured. But there's never been do something do something that sort of limits communication and and may you know may may limit socialization because you could be saving the existence of your teacher or somebody that you live with or or not even somebody you live with but a classmate and someone lives with an older adult we didn't have anything like this to to start from so a lot of us i'm sure have had you know stepped in along the way and and had to sort of recalibrate how we how we parent and how we explain it all exactly and it's a tough conversation it really is um, it's a big conversation because Again, how do we, especially with young kids who are so concrete in the way they think, and by concrete, I mean, it's really black and white for them. So, you know, on the one hand, we said, this is going to keep you safe and it's going to keep other people safe. And now we're saying, okay, you don't need to wear a mask. And yet COVID-19 is still circulating. I mean, it's not like we've eradicated COVID-19. So that's a really tough conversation to have with younger kids. Uh, Kids may need to get used to this idea before they, you know, they could feel comfortable taking off their mask. Yeah, I know. I, I, I hope not to reveal too much about, you know, my own kids in case they're listening or parents are listening, but my 10th grader, probably he's probably going to wear a mask on Monday. See how it goes. My eighth graders a little more throw caution to the wind. And I, and I bet that he won't. Um, I, but I'm glad you pointed out that the struggle I've had sometimes is parents who insist, well, uh, well, my kid likes it and my kid complies and my kid, but often that's the younger kids. Like my teenagers have pointed out Dr. Viancourt, some of the, you know, theatrics of it. Well, why do we wear it in the movie? And then we take it off in the movie. Why do we go to the restaurant? And then we got to put it like, they recognize that that's harder for a five, six, seven year old to sort of, to sort of get the finite principles of going. Yeah. Like that, that, that doesn't make a lot of sense, even when they're learning the ways of the world and, and, and how the science might actually work. It's interesting too, because 
you know, one thing we were really careful about, and you can't see what my position is on masks or Dr. Craig's in this, mm-hmm. because our position isn't important, right? Yeah. Um, our position is that what we want are safe and caring environments. We want kids to feel accepted. We want them to feel uh, validated. We want them to feel that they they matter. Um, so all of those things are core principles that we always have in the back of our mind when it comes to the health and welfare of kids. So here is, it's not for me, uh, you know, a lot of people seem angry about um, the fact that masks are coming off and I could appreciate their worry. Um, But ultimately that's not what my message is or our message. Our message is just the decision was made. So now what are we going to do to make sure kids aren't hurt further, right? This decision was made and that decision means that some families are going to choose to not have their child wear a mask. And some teenagers are going to choose not to wear a mask, even if their families want them to wear a mask. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, so how do we make sure that that environment is safe for them? And then on your point about your kids, um, you know, my daughter is going to wear a mask uh, when she goes back to school. And that is, that's the choice she wants. And, you know, I'm happy to support it. I think a lot of kids are going to be wearing masks. Like, mm-hmm. I don't think it's going to be a free-for-all where everybody's going to just chuck it and get, and get on with it. Um, I think that there's going to be a slower transition than people expect. And, and that's what I've heard has happened in Alberta. They went first. Um, uh, I, I look at a lot of policy in Alberta, and and I question some, some of what they did, especially in the summer of 21 as they were starting to get vaccinated. Um, in Ontario, we were a little more, a lot more, obviously, last spring uh, with a lot of things that were closed recreationally. Um, we were a lot more cautious, um, but maybe that served us well. Maybe that served us to get more vaccinated before we did certain things. And especially when we ba- went back indoors and we were doing indoor sports and starting school up again. But what I've seen in Alberta and what I've heard in Alberta, uh, Dr. Vinecore, is that people have uh, often it's been a hybrid. It's been some teachers still wearing it, some kids still wearing it. All those metrics have dropped. Um, nothing has has ticked up in an alarming way. We sure would have heard about it in the media had that been the case. And, and I guess that's encouraging because we, we haven't seen, you know, there'd be video, there'd be there'd be stories about massive incidents. And, and you know, we don't want to look that way. We don't want to look that way when, especially pre-vaccination, when people were filming themselves, you know, anti-maskers, anti-vaxxers, wearing, going into stores and causing scenes. I feel like, Boy, if if Alberta, like we're a little unfair judging them sometimes. They did go first here, and and maybe there's there's a template. Maybe there's a template for the other provinces to to find a way where where we still all look out for each other. And you know, I don't want to get into the politics of that. I yeah. appreciate your points, but I do. I will say this: just that. So I went to Northern Europe and I gave a few uh, talks uh, just before Christmas and they don't wear masks. They weren't wearing a mask, uh, masks in Sweden. They weren't wearing uh, masks in Norway on the plane from uh, Stockholm to Oslo. Nobody was wearing a mask except for a few of us. I personally wasn't ready to take off my mask. I wore my mask. So that is, you know, respect that that was the choice that I made based on my comfort level. And I just need us to be like that for children who, again, are not making this decision, right? So maybe you can attack my decision as an adult where I do have autonomy, but you can't attack the decision of a kid because it absolutely isn't their decision, right? So um, ultimately, I think that um, there is this, again, this, it'll be interesting to see what happens on Monday. I suspect a lot of kids will still be wearing masks. Dr. Tracy Viancourt, uh, our guest, uh, and uh, her op-ed is with Professor Wendy Craig. That is in the Globe and Mail. You can find it on their website. It's a great pleasure to have you on the show. Uh, I'm glad uh, you uh, responded when when I reached out. I, I love the you know proactiveness and, and how pragmatic uh, the op-ed was. So uh, let's do this again sometime, but I really appreciate you coming on. Thank you. And I'm going to go feed my cat. I'm really sorry about that. <laughs> I can edit. He doesn't have to be in the show if he doesn't no, want to. No, he's not going to make it. <laughs> we barely heard that cat. We barely did. Tracy Viancourt. Can I give you a big story uh, from the United States involving the CDC? Uh, they had and they announced this yesterday. A lot of people have debated talk about pediatric deaths like this is serious, serious stuff. Um, And you have to look at the data. I mean, um, obviously, there's so much tragedy involved with COVID-19 and two years of it. We can't even 
I don't, I've always say this. I don't even think we've been able to properly grieve yet. I don't think we've been able to properly, properly process it because we're still trying to take steps forward and find joy where we can and progress where we can. And, and, and those of us who are parents are pushing, right? We see we've got a finite time with our kids for certain amounts of years. So yesterday they uh, corrected a data error um, or sorry, a coding error with their data tracker and 416 pediatric deaths this afternoon, yesterday afternoon were removed. I don't, I don't understand. So here's the sentence. It's right from the CDC on March 15, 2022 data on deaths were adjusted after resolving a coding logic error. This resulted in decreased death counts across all demographic categories. Yeah, by 416. And a lot of policy, a lot of policy has been made based on this fact. Um, hospitalizations have been up for younger kids, um, many with COVID. And, and we do draw that distinction with COVID because of COVID. Okay. Um, it is that time of year where that happens. And I remember, okay, parent of two kids. You, we took kids zero to one year of age um, to hospitals. That, I took my kid to emergency for croup cough at least once uh, to a hospital with a fever in the middle of the summer of 2006. He was seven months old with a massive fever. Like you're, you're hoping upon hope that the doctor can, and I had to do this on a Sunday. You're hoping the doctor can cool it off. So you do make these trips a lot more, but that's a big time correction um, from that particular data tracker. It's really interesting that that has happened. I mean, it's it's encouraging, I suppose, if anything, that that has happened. Uh, I'm excited to have our next guest on. She uh, represents People for Education, um, and she joins us now, and, and I always enjoy our conversations. Annie Kidder, you're also killing it on Wordle. Um, you're somebody oh. that's... <laughs> You're po- three, just three tries today, huh? You like when's the last time you got one wrong? Maybe you're one of these people with a perfect oh, record, Annie. No, 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 I have failed, and I have to say, uh, it, it you feel like, oh my god, my life is over. It's hilarious <laughs> how quickly the addiction has come. It's like it's morning, I can say Wordle, but I have to say, in my three yesterday or the day before, my husband solved it, and and he's like, he's an actor. How could he? Solve oh, it? he went instantly. He went, what if it's this? So, yep. I am uh, obsessed. It's you know, it's the small things in life. It is, and and it's it, it's it's less demoralizing to ask for help than it is to to get it wrong. We're, we live in an ask for help society and an ask for help age. Yeah, right. We we'd have lived we'd we'd have lived with our world pain a quarter century ago. Now uh-huh. we don't have to. This is all true. So you know, it's the, whatever you can find these days, the world is really really. <sighs> Terrible. So yeah, it, it's it's very absorbing. Small uh, moments of joy. Next week, uh, when when schools reopen, um, I I don't know what to expect. I I've watched the numbers in Alberta. I've watched them go down. I've talked to people uh, out there, and um, and I don't know. I I can't defend a lot of Alberta's policy for the prior twenty two months, and I wouldn't even. I wouldn't even want to, um, but I, I don't know. I'm more encouraged by and then discouraged. They've been at this for weeks, and, and many people still wear uh, masks to school, whether they're N95s or cloth masks. What's your, what's your hope Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, next week in terms of normalcy? Well, A, I don't think there's going to be normalcy for so many other reasons. So we all have to kind of go, this is going to take us so long to recover from in a million different ways. I still think, again, not an epidemiologist, not a doctor, not an expert in the data that's out there, you know, all of the pieces of it. I still think uh, people should be wearing masks in school. Um, I think that, you know, all the children's hospitals and children's health experts said they should. Peter Uni went, I don't know if we should be doing this right now. Um, We have had this terrible thing where... Um, a, where Europe often is like a couple of weeks ahead of us in a bad way, and we're seeing numbers going up again. Um, so to me, the, what makes you feel reassured or maybe even a sense of like, just, yeah, just a sense of sureness is we've set a benchmark or we have a, we have a number that we want to reach and then we will do this. And at the beginning of the pandemic, it looked a little bit more like that. I'm a little bit worried with taking masks away okay. right now that it's a, political uh, act more than it is a um, one based on sort of health numbers. We know, you know, kids under five can't get vaccinated at all. The vaccination rates are still relatively low. 
um, in the very young kids, in the kids 5 to 11. And they're inside. I mean, today it's going to be warm and sunny, but next week it's going to snow again. So they're still inside. Yes, the ventilation is better. I'm not sure why we would take masks away at this point. I wonder, though, um, I, I think two things about what you said. One, um, there's many European countries that have never had masks on of kids under 12. I don't know what the threshold is. Like mine are 13 and 16, and I understood it, and they understood it. I really struggle, especially after 17 months with them on four, five, and six-year-olds. I get a bit of a queasy feeling about it. Yeah. I don't know with with learning loss, which is something we all have to be concerned about if the if the juice is worth the squeeze there. The other thing I want from um, people against it, and you and you brought it up, so I give you credit, is, is yes, give me metrics by which we can do this. I don't mind if, you, if people criticize the Ford government, say, well, they're just picking an arbitrary date here. But if I hear an opposition leader say, or an opposition party leader say, well, let's just give it two more weeks. Well, that's an arbitrary date also. So give me metrics. Give me hospitalizations per 100,000 people. Give me where it works. What if it works in some communities, but not a, you know, a really busy, crowded school in Toronto where there's more COVID? I just don't have those numbers coming back the other way. I mean, I just hear, well, we're not ready yet. No, and I think it's a really good point, and it's really, really important. That's why I'm like putting the big proviso on me and my opinion. Mm -hmm. It is an opinion. I am not an expert. So what I look to is the experts. So Peter Uni, co-chair of the you know COVID science advisory table for the province, and the heads of you know Sick Kids, uh, Chio in Ottawa, McMaster, all the children's hospitals have all said where it's it's not a good time to do this. So I think that to me, it's like I look to them. I was just watching Andre Picard, who, you know, writes about health in the Globe and Mail. Yes. Him also going caution, caution, caution here in places like schools. So there may be other, you know, other in other places, it's your choice. I can decide not to go in if people aren't wearing masks, whatever. But in a place like a school where We've never really, you know, gotten them to the point where there is that sense of physical distance. You know, they're still pretty darn crowded and they're kids, to your point. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm not sure why now in schools. To your other point about learning loss, where there is research now is nobody has been able to um, make a relationship between wearing masks and learning loss. They've been able to make a relationship with lots of other things to do with uh, the pandemic and learning loss, but not specifically masks. So the, and I, and you're totally right about little, at the beginning of the pandemic, it used to make me cry when I would see little kids walking down the streets all wearing masks. I was just like, oh God, you know, but on the other hand, kids have gotten used to them. It's like, you have to wear shoes and you have to wear a mask, you know, so that I think kids are pretty used to it, even though I hate them too. Like wearing a mask all day, mm -hmm. it just, it's horrible. It's, it's not fun. It's not normal. Um, but it's a it's a very small thing that has proven to work. And as we're in once I, again in this slightly unknown area where we've got, we've got this other B, whatever it's called. Yeah, <laughs> that's happening in Europe. It's like, let's just keep them out. And I know now I'm agreeing with they let's just keep them on. But it's like, let's watch the data and let's make sure that in places that are crowded, where people have no choice but to be, um, that we actually maintain those public health uh, measures for for longer than we are right now. Annie Kidder is our guest, uh, People for Education um, on 640 Toronto and Toronto Today. One question I'd ask from a from a high school parent, and that's me, is writing exams. I know that that is um, that is something that's been put on hold, and I understand it um, because especially we finished the year virtually in 2020, so that made it difficult. And we finished the year virtually in 2021. And fingers mm -hmm. crossed, you'd say, I'd say, every parent, every kid, every teacher would say, oh, yeah. we got to keep these things open uh, for the next three and a half months. We have to. So I, I do wonder whether we're 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 doing a disservice. I'd like to see kids write exams because as you know that pressure's good thing pressure's a good thing for a 16 and 17 year old you're going to get that in university i remember <laughs> thinking i don't know if i want to call my parents and say i'm doing pretty badly in one of my five undergrad courses oh, yeah. like they're footing the bit <laughs> so I, I do wonder whether we're, we're we're losing some muscle memory when it comes to writing exams where where would you land on that there's no easy answer there haven't been any easy answers for any of this no, and I think that that I, hmm, I, 
I think what's important there is that we do look at what difference does it make to kids when they have that kind of level of accountability. So there was a whole thing happened uh, over the uh, Christmas break where it's like, okay, your marks only crank, you know, because we saw, you know, more COVID. Your marks, everything you did before Christmas is what counts. And there were parents complained to me. It's like, my kid's going great. Why should I hand anything in now? So it's, <laughs> it's a calm, you know, so there's, there is a combination there. It's, it's what we need in Ontario in, in, in not just in my opinion, based on a lot of research is we need a much more comprehensive plan and kind of vision for what are we doing? And exams are part of that. So how are we assessing how kids are doing? How are we ensuring that they're getting the kinds of learning that they need? What are we doing going forward, not just to sort of recover, but actually to renew what have we learned in the pandemic? And for right now, um, there should be more research. There should be more discussion about this in terms of poor high school kids. Like I, yeah. I'm poor all kids, but oh my, you know, for, to have three you know, basically three years of this, even though so the pandemic's only been two years, it's really wrecked a lot of their high school experience. And you're right, exams are part of that experience, but we have to make sure that um, when we're thinking about how we're evaluating kids and especially how going forward into both secondary, that we've we've looked at at, at all of the pieces rather than just one. And there's a little bit of a tendency right now to go, okay, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll just add back in testing. I, I have nothing against testing at all, but it's like, let's make sure we've added back in all the other pieces. We're releasing a report next week um, mm. from principals from across the province who are basically, you know, calling out a warning going this year has been, if anything, more problematic than the year before because again it's a kind of cumulative impact and they're going there's not enough staff there's not enough assessment to your point yeah you don't know enough so you know i think you're you know i know i'm kind of dancing around this you're you're not wrong about exams but we can't do that do it as a kind of one-off thing we have to it has to be within that basket yeah there's got to be boundaries and consistency to it doesn't and and a plan and and a you know real plan yeah. Well, I'd love to talk more about that report um, when, when you get a hold of it and, yeah. and, and get a look at it. So um, please come back on sooner than later and, and we'll see how uh, we'll see how things are going next week. Thank you for spending time on the March break with uh, us and our listeners. Thank you very much. Take care. Annie Kidder, uh, People for Education. Uh, Sabrina Nanji uh, joins me from, uh, of course, QP Observer. It's great to have you on. We got to do something. These weather people, like they just evade, they evade accountability, Sabrina. We ask it about politicians and media personalities and and certainly public health, but we can't let them skate here if it only gets to like eight today. I'm not going to be happy about this. You know, I'm feeling really betrayed by that groundhog right now. That's right. I, I need some accountability there. Yeah. And Alan Carter, 640 Toronto host. By the way, how are you not broadcasting from a bar today? How is the 12 to 1 Alan, <laughs> the ACRP not taking place with some March Madness in the background and some green hats and beer? We got to work on that for 2023. <laughs> you know, I, I've been in this business for a long time. And I'll tell you, one of the worst assignments you can get <laughs> as a TV reporter is, hey, go live tonight at a bar on St. Patrick's Oh, Day gosh. Watch the madness and people just trying to stick their tongues in your ear and everything. Oh, it's terrible. Did you? I know you did a lot of Raptor stuff in, in 19. Did you have to, have to do it live from Jurassic Park? In the, I watched TV reporters do that, and I'm like, this is this is a no win for everybody. Um, there's just no. It's live microphones. It's uh, it's people that are all tanked up, elbow to elbow. They're yelling. Uh, Drake's getting on stage and riling them up in breaks. Uh, not a great assignment was Jurassic Park in 2019. Well, it, it, it's fun. It's all fun until somebody, as I said, <laughs> here while you're trying to talk to a live hit. Uh, so, Sabrina, I saw this yesterday. Uh, uh, it's obviously Zelensky addressed uh, U.S. Congress. He addressed uh, the House of Representatives and, and Senators. He did the House of Commons on Tuesday. He's making the rounds because he's doing it with uh, with Germany's parliament um, today. This is a big question. We talked about what we're all looking for in, in leadership, say, for the Conservative Party of Canada or as we as we approach our Ontario election in under three months. Do you look, Sabrina, and say Zelensky's got 
any long-term influence on what we look for in politicians? Or is this a is this a total outlier? It's it's an incredibly immediate crisis, a humanitarian crisis, a military crisis. So you know, we're asking a lot if we're if we're <laughs> if people are knocking on our door asking for a vote and are like, are you like Zelensky? Because it it just feels like it. Maybe it's that moment in time that's an outlier. What's your thought on it? Look, I, I think there's no doubt Zelensky has really stepped up to the plate. I think every woman I know now has a crush on him and, and most men for that matter. <laughs> Justin too. Trudeau does. He calls him every day. It's it's like the seventh grade girl that I couldn't get over. Yeah. I mean, people are clearly smitten with him. Like, I think days after Russia went in, went in on Ukraine, people on the Internet were already fan casting Jeremy Renner to play Zelensky <laughs> in the in the future movie. You know, that guy, Hawkeye, the dude with the arrows on the Avengers movies. You know, never mind that Zelensky himself is an actor. But I think you're right. You know, there's no doubt that this is going to set a high bar for our politicians. Um, it seems almost as important to seem like a good leader than, you know, actually it being a good leader. Um, and I don't mean those photo ops of Putin riding shirtless on, on horseback, like Zelensky, mm -hmm. the way he's been addressing parliaments and Congress in a teacher t-shirt, he's giving off these Churchill esque vibes. And he's basically the manifestation of his country's like remarkable resistance to the Russian forces. So I think that a lot of politicians closer to home here in Canada are paying close attention to this, especially now in COVID times. But you're right, you know, for, for a lot of us, you know, the pandemic has felt like a bit of a war front, but what's happening in mm. Ukraine obviously does not compare. It's on a completely different level. Um, and, you know, I think we're all paying to Zel paying attention to Zelensky for good reason. That's the awesome uh, Sabrina Nanji joining us. Alan, I heard of you about a week and a half ago, and I think it was the day that Christine Elliott said uh, that she wouldn't run again. And and you documented um, the, the notion of just how many conservative MPPs are in a majority government right now and saying, no, thanks. I'm going to go into the private sector or, or I've had enough of this. I think we had a tough time in 2019 and, and for maybe a decade before getting really good people to want to go into politics because we look through we look through their garbage. We look through their closets. We scour their social media. We look for ways to sort of almost trap them sometimes. And I wonder now with COVID as well that it's really hard to find uh, inspiration in, in politicians. And no matter who thinks Justin Trudeau, Doug Ford, John Tory, whatever job they've done, we we know that that there's been buck passing along the way. Well, that's the province's job. That's the municipal. We saw that for four straight weeks. It felt like in Ottawa, didn't we? Yeah, I think one of the, you know, one of the unfortunate outcomes of the pandemic is a loss of faith in um in organizations and in, in uh, leadership, I, I think at the beginning of the pandemic, you you saw this you know real strong belief in the health uh, administration and the political administration at, at all levels. And I think over the course of the pandemic, that has just ground down a little bit. And I think that's kind of unfortunate. And I, what I you know I'm a worrier by nature, and I worry about, I especially worry about the next variant. Which I think you know, I think we're fooling ourselves if we don't think that there's another one coming. It might be less severe than Omicron. I'm not suggesting that, but if we get ourselves into a situation where this thing comes back, are we ready to listen to our political and health leaders again? If they were to say, I mean, look at look at Scotland, who's just now said, yeah, you know, we were going to take away masks, our numbers are back up, we're put, we're not doing that. And I, I, I wonder what will happen if our leadership tries to reimpose any kind of restrictions on us, if there's a surge in any way, if, if the public will just go, no, forget you, we're not doing it. Let me follow that up with you. And then I, I'm really curious to hear um, Sabrina's thoughts, because we saw yesterday, and, and you've documented a fair bit, how a lot of internal polling does seem to dictate what the Ford government does on a regular basis. So the polls numbers that they received in mid-January were really poor. But that was almost like you, you're not letting us choose here. We got it. We got parents who are three times vaccinated, kids who are two times vaccinated, and you're shutting it all down again on us. So you're not letting... You know, it's one thing to say, hey, 80 year olds don't go anywhere, but you're not you're telling 20 year olds, uh, you know, you, you, you can't be anywhere right now. And I do wonder if that factors in. I agree. I, I think asking anybody to do anything as they did, they asked us to do everything in the summer of 2020 when all this was new. You can ask anybody to do anything for a few weeks, Alan. It is a huge ask to say to say. And to your point about masks. Yeah, we're seeing this in, in South Korea where masks are part of the culture and they're getting swallowed up like you have to wear a mask everywhere in South Korea. And there's a ton of compliance. 
And uh, and I, I agree with you. We're we're, um, we're we're just wondering how much control we want to give governments and, and public health officials. We do. Yeah, well, and, you know, like the prime minister, when it was that when he was asked, you know, are you going to wear a mask after Monday after the mandate lift? And he basically just said, well, you know, uh, everybody's got to figure out their own risk assessment. It's all about personal choice. I I like to think that all of us are going to be walking around with like a slide rule or an abacus going like trying to figure out like, OK, what's my <laughs> what's the percentage here? What's my what's my angle? You know, what's what's you know, because that, that's that's where we're all going to be. And it, it just feels like. I, I, I don't know. I, I just I wonder if we do get any kind of a surge at all. And let, let's face it, the you know, pandemic has con- constantly and consistently thrown thrown us curveballs. Mm. How would we? How are we going to handle something like that if it's around the corner? Sabrina, it is quite controversial, isn't it? Um, and and as I mentioned, Ford and his cabinet, I have it in front of me now, got their worst polling results of the COVID nineteen pandemic as Omicron was sweeping through us, even with schools being closed. There's still a lot of debate and question whether any guy with with a with a with a um, variant that transmissible yet less severe um, was the juice worth the squeeze. It it, uh, it I know how I felt when I heard about it on January third and. I felt like it was one of the worst mental health days of the pandemic thinking we're here again. Yeah. And I think that's uh, always the underlying fear to this, but I think the onus is kind of on the governments uh, when they're, they need to do more to empower individuals to make these decisions. Like, Ontario moved like molasses. It took them forever to, you know, uh, uh, dole out rapid tests. That way, you know, uh, you can stay home from work uh, if you're feeling sick, uh, symptomatic, uh, you know, make make these decisions make sense. We all remember when they closed playgrounds while keeping malls open. Mm -hmm. They restricted mom and pop shops while allowing big box stores to get jam packed. And of course, you know, the Ford government, um, the health officials can spin it and say, uh, you know, we, we we learned more about the pandemic, so we're we're making our changes to our decisions. But I think for a lot of us now, we we all know more about this virus uh, after two years, and we we need to be empowered by our governments to actually make these individual choices that they are now putting on on the public. So for me, it always comes down to data. Um, we're actually getting science table data today in Ontario and. We've always got to take this with a grain of salt because they lay out a wide range of possibilities. And so, you know, it's kind of on journalists too to sift through all this, you know, whack of information that we're getting and help it make sense for the public so that we can get through this. We can, I hate the phrase, learn to live with COVID, mm-hmm. but I guess we are kind of, you know, going in that direction now. So, uh, you know, show, show me the data and uh, behind this decision-making. That's, and, and, that's what it comes down to. And I me. think I got two thoughts. I, I hope you both can uh, um, take take as long as you want to react to it. One, one is that, yes, uh, we got to do stuff based on data and not necessarily feelings. And I think we've gotten better with the science table stuff instead of a big headline saying the science table predicts, the science table predicts they are laying out worst case scenarios. And I think in early days, I think all of us got a little trapped in running with, with, the, with, the, with the bad numbers and thinking this is where it's going to go. The other point I'd make is from a public health perspective, Sabrina, the, the idea of, of breaking down um, COVID as with or from, that's a known issue with a lot of our data like why why wait so like why wouldn't you want to fix that why would you not even choose but insist on using numbers that inflate the perception of severity i do think there was a let's keep everybody on their toes here and i understand that let's not make 20 and 30 year olds think that you're you're immune to this because maybe a bad outcome could happen but they really didn't and i don't think they did this in the states well either they didn't really didn't lay out that if if you know who's at much much greater risk than others that just didn't, it seemed to be one size fits all guidelines yeah, and I think you know the the long term danger of this is that it's eroding health, uh, our trust in public health and public health measures. Like we have gone from you know press conferences every day, you know everyone tuning in at one p.m. at the height of the pandemic to hear the premier, you know, speak to us in grave tones. Uh, I think you know kind of what we were talking about before. He had mm-hmm. on this like military style bomber jacket, uh, you know, resembling something that the president of the U.S. would wear as commander in chief. You know that. <laughs> 
So obviously I think that, <laughs> you know, people are, are not going to just fall in line and, you know, listen to exactly what uh, the rules are. And again, like the governments need to do more to help us make these informed decisions on our own. Otherwise, you know, uh, I really hope it doesn't happen and I don't want to jinx anything, but in case there is, you know, another surge uh, as our COVID restrictions are lifting, as we're getting rid of masks. So I think that, uh, you know, the, the long-term effect of this might be that people just start tuning out and, uh, that, that could be, you know, that could go either way, I guess, in terms of the, uh, where we are in the pandemic. Alan, you love that bomber jacket. I know you're a massive fan of the, uh, of the premier, I do other members of cabinet or Monty McNaughton and Stephen Letcher are probably like, can I get the, bo-? no, it's just for premiers. No, you can't even, can't even buy one. I'll make you a cheesecake to get one. <laughs> yeah, there was only well, yeah, also only one cabinet member making uh, cheesecake videos like that. There seemed to be a patent, a copyright on uh, on allowing that to in- <laughs> to in- make it from scratch. To yes, to indeed uh, to indeed be the case. When Sabrina mentions the science table numbers uh, again a little later on today, like yeah, are we all? paying the same attention are we all I, I liken it to kieran moore was playing like budweiser stage and david williams was playing and and now they're sort of they're sort of at a smaller concert hall they still have songs but they are they're playing to a, to a little bit lesser of an audience i noticed the live tweeting of those kind of events is a lot more diminished in my timeline anyway than it was eight ten months ago i you know i i, I have a different perspective on the science table i think the science table has done a remarkable job uh, at laying out the various outcomes. I think that, you know, I, I kind of put the blame pretty much on us as journalists. Yeah. I, I don't think that we provide an, enough context. I mean, you think about the way that journalism works and the way that news works. I mean, what's, what's the, you know, what's the big headline going to be? It's always going to be whatever the worst case scenario is. So that, you know, re- repeatedly whenever the science table would come up with anything, we would put, Big top headline: Science table predicts, you know, nine nine thousand. For example, the fall, right? Nine thousand daily COVID nineteen cases. But it's a worst case scenario. But then your neighbor's probably saying to you, "Hey, there's there's smart guy Alan Carter on TV and radio. Hey, Alan, I, I hear there's going to be nine thousand daily cases." And you're like, "Ooh, that's a worst case." But you, you can't just explain it to everybody. Like we did run with that stuff. You're right. Yeah, and it's you know, and so it was worst case, middle road, best case, and they do that every time. Um, but you know, what, what also you got to put into context too, at, at that point, you're, you're talking about trying to establish some kind of public health policy and what the science table is saying, like, if you don't do anything, and this is what mm-hmm. happened time and time again, they would come out and say, okay, Ford government, if you don't do anything, this is going to happen. And the Ford government would go, thanks very much. We'll get back to you. And then like a week and a half later, every doctor in the, in the province, of the, the Greek chorus, as I call are screaming at the top <laughs> of their lungs, do something, do something, do something, do something. And then finally the government would do something. And that happened time and time again over the pandemic. Yeah, it really did. Uh, Sabrina, thank you so much for the uh, time. QP Observer is where you can find her. The Alan Carter radio program. Noon to what? Will you have any Cinderella tournament picks near the end of the show to help people out with their <laughs> with their wagers? Do you have, do you have any four, 13 seeds over a four later today? Yeah, uh, here, here's my advice. <laughs> Don't do anything that I would do when it comes to picks. <laughs> Go chalk. Go chalk all the way, all the way through the entire tournament. Just pick all the higher seeds, lower seeds, as it were. Thank you, too, both very much. Be well. Sabrina Nanji and Alan Carter joining us on uh, Chatterbox. Bruce Arthur joining us. Now, I'm. I feel like I'm crazy here. Aaron Judge... Played in the series against the Jays at the end of the year. He hit a monster home run off Robbie Ray. I'm not even sure it still landed. And and now he's not allowed to come. Why was he allowed to come up in September? I'm being serious. I don't remember controversy about unvaccinated Yankees players. Were they testing? How did like I don't remember how that worked. I think at the time, if I remember, and this whole pandemic is such a time suck that it's really difficult to figure out what happened when they yeah. got, unless you just chart it by the waves. But in, if I remember in September, the conversation on mandates still hadn't progressed to the point where they were talking about that. Now, one thing that happened, though, remember in the fall, is that New York passed a vaccine mandate for any athlete or who wanted to play. So that's why Kyrie Irving has barely played this year. He scored 60 mm-hmm. points the other day. He's still really, really good, but has refused to get vaccinated. I'm really interested to see if Aaron Judge is going to go down that same path, because in basketball, you can do that. 
In basketball, you absolutely can do that. I'm not sure you can do that in baseball, where you need to see a steady diet of major league pitching every day. And there's a ton of games every day. It's not like you're just missing a couple here or there. So uh, I just think at this point, it's so interesting. Vaccination should be one of the easiest things we do. The, The amount of evidence that vaccination is both safe and effective is overwhelming. It is astonishing. They've given out 10 billion doses in the world. And yet there are some people who still find it to be a bridge too far. And I really think that it's probably an information problem rather than anything else. So it's really interesting, isn't it? Eric Judge, as you point out, he can play 70 games. He can't play in his home stadium. He can't go across the street uh, and, and take that seven train up to City Field in Flushing Meadow and play against the Mets in Interleague. And he can't come to Toronto and play nine games. Now, the Jays, who are loading up like we haven't seen since maybe, you know, the Jose Reyes trade again with the Marlins, um, we there's very little empathy for the Jays. They're like, are you kidding? Do you know what we've been through the last two years? But there's an awful lot of unvaccinated Yankees and Red Sox. It sounds like, so does MLB step in? Do the Yankees petition? Um, Does the Canadian government acquiesce? Like I, I don't have a good answer as to how any of this ends. Now you got to remember also that New York has a bit of a cartoon character for a mayor and not for the first time. So Eric Adams (laughs) may well, lift the vaccine mandate uh, because it'll be an easy thing to do. Like what the problem you get with vaccination as a policy, and this is the problem with mandates in Ontario, it's a problem everywhere, is that it's a dynamic situation. It's not like you do two and you're done forever because it turns out we came up with a vaccine faster than any vaccine in history for a disease we'd never seen before. But what that meant is that they worked extremely well, but so far three doses will give you protection against infection and severe disease. Two doses will give you infection or protection against severe disease. So you got to keep going, right? And a four, I, I would not be surprised if a fourth dose is going to happen for everybody. And the people who complain about that, I honestly don't understand. Like, it's an appointment. You can just do it. But uh, as you go forward, it, it's difficult to keep people up to date with the mandates because everyone gets tired. Governments stop wanting to push it. Um, people don't, don't keep their appointments. That's how you get a flu shot rate of like 45%. And that's going to be a real challenge going forward, which is why I think we need a really robust infrastructure to do this. I think we need to really be ready to keep people on a vaccination schedule and explain the importance of it, because this is still the worst pandemic in 100 years. It's not over. It's still ongoing. No, no. And and I, you know, you saw, I saw Trevor Noah call out the silliness of, wait a minute, Kyrie can sit courtside without a mask. He made a great point. Can he take the half court <laughs> shot as a fan if, uh, and, and win the, and win a Toyota? Um, and Aaron Rodgers, the Packers are going to go to Europe for the very first time. They're the only club that's not played at, uh, in, in, in NFL, uh, games in, in London. And I don't think if Novak Djokovic can't play Wimbledon, I don't think Aaron Rodgers can play and um, can play for the Green Bay Packers at uh, at Tottenham Stadium. I could be wrong about that. Well, and the big problem with in terms of professional athletes and COVID, even if you're vaccinated against COVID, you can like even if you're triple vaccinated, you can still get it. Just like you can, like it, it, it's not the it just isn't going to send you to the hospital. It, it could just make you really sick. Right, so if half a team gets a bad flu for a week, that's a problem with professional sports. It's a problem when it comes to theater. It's a problem in any kind of in anything where you need people to show up on time for work, and that's one of the challenges you get in sports. So Aaron Rodgers rapid tested every day, although his story keeps changing, so it's hard to really tell exactly mm-hmm. what happened there in Green Bay. But the idea is, that if you rapid test every day, it's unpleasant, but you can do it, and that's probably going to keep you and other people around you safe to a pretty significant degree. That's kind of how professional sports has to do it, and that's how up until the mandate, the hospitals were doing it. It's trickier when you get into stuff like professional sports because the stakes are so high. So you had a lot of flying to do during Olympics. If I said to you, this did occur to me when I flew to Los Angeles, a lot shorter trip and a lot less bouncing around, but I didn't give it a second thought that, that whether somebody was unvaccinated or not. You don't even think about it when you're on the plane because you're lowering your mask, you're eating, you're drinking, and by the way, everybody does have to provide uh, a, a test. Like, why would somebody get on a plane if they had a positive test knowing they're going to have to show their documentation when they land, which we did on both sides of the border. Then they're dropping that today in terms of Canada with the test on the way back, not in time for, for you to come back, but by April 1st. <laughs> so uh, is this the next bridge to unvaccinated people flying and will vac- triple vaccinated people like you and me just roll up our shoulders and say, I guess like this is probably where it's going, that that we're just not going to we're already there, right? With restaurants, gyms, everywhere else. We don't know who's vaccinated and who isn't. 
Yeah, one thing though is you got to think of who's regulating it, right? Mm-hmm. What's happened across the uh, across the country over the last few years is you've gotten an example in federalism, where you are at the mercy of your provincial government on a great deal of things. We've got some really bad provincial governments in this country, and then when you go up to the federal level, I will give the, like the, it's not like the liberals have been perfect on any of this. But certainly, this was not a country that was ready for a pandemic on almost any front, but they have been more solid on regulation and message and basically in terms of delivery they've been better and in this case what that means is like to fly within canada you need to provide proof of vaccination when i flew to the olympics you needed to provide proof of vaccination and two negative tests so i didn't worry about that in this case coming across the border i don't think that's a big deal i don't think you need a test yeah you should need a test to get across the border i just don't think that's terribly helpful epidemiologically speaking right that's not something that you need to do but in terms of vaccination I still think that there should be spurs to vaccination within society because, again, on the whole, this is one of the safest medical procedures ever invented in the world and has an enormous societal benefit. And if you want to participate in society, like here's one thing about the pandemic, and I I hope we're headed for, I think we're going to head for a quiescent period because it's summer and people get to change their behavior and all of that. What virologists will tell you is that there will be another variant and they don't know what it's going to do. The three different variants we've had, the big ones, in terms of Alpha, Delta, and Omicron, have been different. It's, yeah. like, it's not like these are three kinds of wolves. These are three different kinds of animals. And so they don't know what's going to happen next. We should try to keep, as a society, gently pushing for more people to be vaccinated. So I really do think that on planes, that's an easy one. You already have to show a ton of stuff to get into the airport. You do, one yeah. More, right? Um, I got 45 seconds. How do we get better with boosters? We're ahead of the United States. We're ahead of Australia where they haven't had as much COVID and not as much loss of life. But Bruce, we're behind Belgium, Great Britain, Germany, Netherlands, France. We're way behind those five European countries. Where have we fallen down in all the provinces, not campaigning or pushing hard for a third shot? We're not where we need to be. And that's the biggest reason hospitals go go full is, is older adults that only have one or two shots. Yeah, part of it is Omicron because you can't get it for three months after you've had it, I believe. I, you know, I might be getting that wrong. But part of it is, what's the messaging you've seen from the federal government, from the provincial government, from the municipal government on boosters, right? And compared to the first round, there's been such, there's been so little urgency. Mm-hmm. because And, and, and that, that extends to people. So a lot of this is communication. A lot of this is cues. A lot of the stuff that we do in society, people do listen to governments on a broad basis until that trust is shattered. And in this case, I think we've just done a really poor job of that. I think we've done a poor job of explaining what it does. Again, two doses will keep you probably from going to the hospital, almost certainly. Three doses means you got an 80% protection against infection plus the better protection against stuff in hospital. That's yeah. what we need to be telling people more and more because it's also about shared societal responsibility. You don't want to get someone else sick. Yeah, that's still, that's, that, that still exists. If my parents only had two and not three, I'd have called them every day since, uh, since Christmas time. I would have. I know you got a blast. Thanks so much for the time. We'll talk longer next week. Brady, my pleasure, my friend. Thanks so much for listening to the Toronto Today podcast. We'll have a fresh radio broadcast tomorrow on Friday, March 18th to finish out the week. And you can keep finding our podcast where you currently did. Feel free to subscribe, share, rate us as well. That's always helpful to know what we can do better for you, the subscriber, downloader, listener. Thanks again for listening.